The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The United States versus Google. The first trial pitting the federal government against a U.S. technology company in more than two decades began in a D.C. federal court on Tuesday. The Justice Department and state attorneys general allege that Google illegally monopolized the online search market by paying billions of dollars to tech rivals, smartphone makers, and wireless providers in exchange for being the default search engine on browsers and mobile devices. But Google's top lawyer, Kent Walker, told CBS News that consumers use the search engine because it's helpful and it's easy to switch to another search engine. It really couldn't be easier. It's, you can sit at home on your couch and, and change what search engine you're using. It's as easy as changing your shoes. My guest is antitrust expert Harry First, a professor at NYU Law School. Harry, just how important is this case? This is an important case, at least symbolically and maybe practically. So symbolically, it's important. It is the first case in more than two decades to challenge a durable high-tech monopoly. So the last case was brought in May of 1998. So that's a quarter of a century since the last one, and that was against Microsoft. And since that time, nothing. So it is symbolically important because it shows the federal government and the state antitrust enforcers turning their attention to big power in our economy. Does it focus on the company paying more than $10 billion a year for exclusive agreements with smartphone makers, web browsers, and wireless providers in exchange for it being, you know, the pre-selected option, the default on mobile phones and browsers? Is that the focus of the government's case? Yeah, so it was a mixture of things. With the mobile distribution channel, the Android OEMs like Samsung, it started out as a licensing agreement, the Mobile Application Distribution Agreement, MATA. I guess you get MAD or MATA. I don't know. If the handset manufacturer wanted to download any of the Android apps, Google Maps, Chrome browser, they had to download all of them and they had to put the Google search widget on the home screen. So that originally was not for money. It was if you want to use the Android system, you have to take this, basically. It later changed into some sort of revenue share agreement where, you know, if you had Google search on exclusively, then you would share advertising revenues that Google got from that. So those were those payments. The other side was the browser with Apple and Safari, 
And those agreements were pretty confidential. I'm not sure the exact number has come out or how much will come out, but they basically paid for the default position on Safari browser and then, you know, on a few other browsers to be the default search engine. So I keep wanting to say Netscape, but of course, Netscape. <laughs> Takes us back. <laughs> right. So it would just be the default, but for which Google is willing to pay apparently quite large sums of money. Is there anything wrong with that, with the company saying, I'll pay you if you do this and we well, both benefit? Well, the definition of an agreement is we both benefit. So the question is whether these agreements help to maintain Google's monopoly position. So firms enter into lots of agreements across the economy, of course, and most of them are lawful. But when it comes to monopoly firms, firms that have a monopoly position, they can't use agreements to unreasonably exclude competitors. And that's what the government plaintiffs are arguing, that these agreements unreasonably excluded good competitors who were foreclosed from, you know, getting their search engines in front of consumers so they could use them, and so that they could get more and more searches done on them and continuously do what Google had been able to do, and they were monopolists, more and more data, more and more data, and so get better results, have a better search engine. So the argument is that they excluded competitors through these agreements. Does the Justice Department have to prove that there was harm to consumers or to the market? So the answer is no, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> how's that? So technically, the government plaintiffs don't have to prove injury. Private plaintiffs, if they want to collect money, have to prove they've been harmed and by how much. Government plaintiffs just have to prove harm to competition, which is a rather more abstract thing than, you know, proving an exact dollar figure or something. So this is why I say, no, they don't have to have some clear proof that this caused, you know, prices to go up, things like that. But they do have to have an argument for why competition was restricted, why sort of the normal rivalry in the marketplace was impeded. And they will make an argument that that harmed consumers and deprived them of certain things. So they may make an argument that prices were higher, maybe not say by exactly how much, but advertising prices were higher. Apparently, they're going to make some sort of argument like that. They'll argue that competitors were unable to innovate and provide maybe different kinds of or better searches or push Google to be more innovative and that consumers were harmed because by preventing competition, you have less innovation. So that will be the rough argument for why consumers were injured, simply beyond you know having only one choice, uh, the monopolist. In the opening statements, Google's lawyer argued that consumers don't use Google because they have to. They use it because they want to. And if they want to switch, it's easy enough. Right. So that is, is a factual argument in essence, but it's also an appeal to framing the case in a way favorable to Google and in a way that they hope will appeal to the judge. So Google's basic argument is, are you kidding me? <laughs> this is the greatest product ever. Why do people use it? You know, nobody's holding a gun to their head. They use it because it's darn good. And 
you know, nothing is stopping consumers from changing those defaults. They could do it. You know, it's easy enough to do. So tell me why they don't do it. Well, I'll tell you why they don't do it. They don't do it because they get a great product and they're happy with it. And in the end, Google says, and this is true, the purpose of the antitrust laws is to serve consumers. That's what markets are for. And consumers are being very well served. So why are you bringing this case, government? <laughs> Is that the only argument you think they're going to make? Well, there are lots of legal arguments along the way. They may argue that search actually isn't a product because it's unpriced free. You know, you can't raise its price. You can't lower its price. The product, if there's a product involved, is advertising. You know, and then what's the advertising market? They'll argue that, okay, if search is a product, you know, there are lots of ways to search for information. Even on the internet, there are lots of ways to search for information. So, for example, you know, people search for information on TikTok. Maybe not you or me, but younger people do. People search for information on Amazon. You know, if they're looking for a product, lots of people just go right to Amazon and look for it. They don't look for it on Google. So there are lots of different ways to search for things. And so Google is if search is a product, Google doesn't control it. Uh, consumers control it. They sit at those keyboards and make their choices. The judge asked Google's lawyer to respond to the Justice Department's allegation that, quote, what you say are competition for defaults are not really competition at all, that really only Google can be selected for the default. Do you know what he meant by that? So Google was selected for the default because they paid for it in one way or another, either through the revenue share or for saying, you know, if you want all these apps, you've got to make it a default, or they paid Apple large sums of money. The question is more, what does a default mean? Default isn't an exclusivity, it's just a start. It's where things start, the default. So, you know, Google wants to say, there's still plenty of consumer choice. So Google isn't controlling it, consumers are controlling it. I think the judge has already shown a little skepticism about an argument that defaults don't matter, uh, which is, I think, what Google wants to say. You know, they don't matter because they're changeable. And I think, you know, the judge, is my recollection, was pressing Google's counsel already for saying, well, give me some examples to consumers changing. Harry, as a lawyer, which side would you rather be on, the government's or Google's? I think the government's case is strong, actually. Now, I say that in part because there's been a test run in a way. The European Commission already found a lot of this stuff to be in European competitional abusive dominance. The agreements relating to mobile distribution, not the browser part. And, you know, one good reasoning, that doesn't compel the same results in the United States, but it's pretty similar. It's similar to arguments that were made in the Microsoft case about contracts that were exclusive and effectively excluded Netscape, the browser, even though, you know, you could still get a browser in different ways. Now, you may remember, I remember, you know, it used to be, well, if you couldn't get the browser pre-installed on a Dell PC, they came in the mail, <laughs> uh, right? You could mail them. You know, I still have some of those disks in my office. Get rid of them. <laughs> right. So, hey, there's plenty of distribution. And the court said there, you know, it doesn't have to completely foreclose you, but it's, it just shuts off basically the easiest part of 
uh, the most efficient way of distribution. And in that old day, the OEMs, the Dells of the world, Compact, didn't want to put a second browser on because of cost. And here, they get that same default, even though they technically don't call it exclusive. It's the same sort of thing. So I think the government has a strong case. Obviously, it's not a lay-down case. I haven't heard any talk of settlement. So Google presumably feels that it might be able to win a trial. And there's a long time between here and there, as they say, before there's some resolution of this case, because this is really, we're just at the beginning of it. In its lawsuit against Google, the Justice Department pointed to that Microsoft case and said that Google deploys the same playbook as Microsoft did. How much does this case borrow from the Microsoft case or echo the Microsoft case? I think there are a lot of similarities. You know, Microsoft, a lot of the exclusionary work was done by exclusive contracts that they had with Internet service providers, with AOL, so forth. They paid them money. So there are a lot of factual similarities. I don't think there's the same sort of technological effort of tying Google search to something, which is what Microsoft did with the Internet Explorer browser. But it's quite similar, and the district court has already followed the legal playbook as well. I mean, the government, I think, has tried to say, hey, this is Microsoft, and you know how that came out. And legally, the district court judges already followed the way the Court of Appeals set out the structure for analyzing the problem. The district court has already chosen that in an earlier decision that made the case. So Microsoft is going to be very important in this case. But, you know, in the end, facts are very important. So we'll see yet how the judge feels about the arguments on default and how much of the market was really foreclosed by this or, you know, how you figure that out. So that's yet to be seen. If Google loses, there'll be a second stage of the trial to determine the remedy. Is a breakup likely or unlikely? I mean, so I'll take the other side of the coin of Google. Fair enough. Not not of the company, but of the case. So the Microsoft case on whether Microsoft violated the Sherman Act, the Court of Appeals that ultimately decided the case unanimously basically decided it in favor of the government on the monopolization arguments and in a very important and strong decision. On the other hand, when it came to remedy, the Court of Appeals was not so gung-ho And the key line, I think, is their view that the remedy had to be tailored to fit the wrong. So although the Court of Appeals never directly opined on whether a breakup would be allowed, because eventually there was a settlement, it was pretty clear that they were not inclined to approve a breakup, would have not been inclined in Microsoft. So for this case, the government is going to have to show some sort of systemic approach to how Google operates that requires, that is, you know, they are so deeply into maintaining their monopoly that the only way to deal with this is somehow to restructure the company. That's a heavy lift, and it will depend on how the government presents its case. If it focuses, as it seems to be, on the specifics of these contracts, 
well, then it seems to me the remedy is likely to be let's do something about the contracts. Uh, so breaking up Google, are we going to see Goog and Goo? Uh, I think it's pretty unlikely, but, you know, again, that's going to depend on the kind of case the government presents, I think, even before the remedies trial, but at the trial on liability. What did they do wrong? Because remedy, remedies the wrong. Thanks so much, Harry. As always, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. That's NYU Law Professor Harry First. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The money is there. The cause is righteous. The world is watching. And the UAW is ready to stand up. This is our defining moment. It certainly was an unprecedented moment as the United Auto Workers went on strike Friday against all three Detroit automakers, a strategy announced by its president, Sean Fain. Of course, Tesla doesn't have to worry about strikes. It's the only major U.S. auto manufacturer not represented by a union. The electric car makers' legal disputes over union organizing are no secret. And the legal fight over Tesla's ban on workers wearing union shirts on its electric car production line has reached the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Joining me is labor law expert Kate Andreas, a professor at Columbia Law School. Kate, tell us about this Tesla ban. So Tesla banned union shirts. It required workers in the plant to only wear Tesla shirts, black shirts in particular, or with supervisors' permission, I think they were also able to wear plain black shirts. What the workers did is they wanted to wear UAW shirts that were also black, that looked basically the same as the Tesla shirts, but instead of having the Tesla logo on them, they had the UAW logo. Is that an unusual kind of ban? I mean, don't a lot of places have uniforms? So since the 1940s, the NLRB has held, with Supreme Court approval, that 
workers are allowed to wear union insignia, including union T-shirts, unless there's a special business reason for an employer to prohibit it. So it is the case that a lot of employers have uniform requirements, but they have to permit workers to wear union buttons, union stickers, union shirts, unless there's some business reason why doing so is detrimental to the business. The reason for that is the board has recognized that showing your support for the union is an important part of how workers organize unions, and it's an important part of workers' rights to expression at work, right? It's their right to communicate their support for the union, and that is protected by the NLRA. The NLRB made a decision against the Tesla ban last year. Tell us about that. So the board's decision was consistent with the doctrine going all the way back to 1945, really old case called Republic Aviation. And that case held that workers can wear union insignia on their shirts, on buttons, things like that, as long as it's not causing a problem for the business. So the presumption is that it's okay to wear union insignia. The business has to show, the employer has to show that there's a specific business reason why wearing union messages is impermissible, is damaging to the business. And in this case, the board found that Tesla wasn't able to do that. It wasn't able to show why wearing a UAW logo on a black shirt versus a Tesla logo on a black shirt caused any problem for the business. Did it factor in at all that Tesla adopted this policy in 2017 during a campaign by the UAW to organize production workers? Tesla's position was that it adopted the ban because there were problems with production, that Tesla vehicles were getting harmed in some way in production, so it tightened up its uniform rules. But what the board said was, well, if you had, for example, made a prohibition on wearing sharp implements, that would be understandable, right? Because you might rip a car seat if you're wearing a sharp implement. But what you can't do is adopt a rule that really doesn't in any way. There's no special business reason for it. And you certainly can't do it if there's the possibility that you're doing it in order to coerce workers in exercise of their union organizing rights, that you're trying to discriminate against union activity. So it is especially illegal if it's adopted in order to retaliate against union activity. But even if it's not, right, even if it's adopted for other reasons, it's not permissible unless the employer can show that there's a need for it. And there are lots of cases where the board has held that a ban is permissible because there's a special business need. For example, hospitals can tell OR nurses they have to wear scrubs, right? Grocery stores can tell workers who are cashier workers, you know, who are public-facing workers, that they have to wear a particular uniform. Nursing homes can tell workers that they have to wear uniforms in patient care areas. But this is really different. These are workers who are working not facing the public, in a plant, and there was no business reason why they couldn't wear the UAW logo instead of a Tesla logo on their shirt. And so the board said that violates their right to organize. But it seemed like the Fifth Circuit judges were concentrating on the difference between dress codes that don't allow any expression of union support and those like Tesla's that permit workers to wear union stickers and the like on their company shirt. One of the judges said, a sticker says go union, union is good or whatever. In what way is that an insufficient means of communication? So were these judges ignoring that precedent you just told us about? Right. One of the judges seemed to be saying 
if the employer gives workers some way to communicate their support, that's enough. That the employer gets to decide how workers can communicate their support for the union. That is not what the precedent has held since 1945, with the exception of a very brief period during the Trump administration, when the board kind of clamped down on workers' ability to express themselves. But other than that brief period during the Trump administration, since 1945, the board has said the employer doesn't get to decide that it doesn't like union shirts or it doesn't like union buttons, unless there's a business reason for that. So if the Fifth Circuit ends up adopting the reasoning that was suggested in oral argument, that would be a real retrenchment of where workers' rights have been for a long time. And the opinion you were referring to was a Supreme Court opinion. Yeah, so it's a Supreme Court opinion called Republic Aviation, and it was the court in that case upholding what the board had decided. That's important, too. So there's sort of two things that are worrisome about what the Fifth Circuit judges were suggesting. One is that it suggests that there's at least some interest or possibility of narrowing workers' rights to express themselves in their effort to organize. But the other is a question of how much will court defer to the expertise of the board. And so in this 1945 case from the Supreme Court, Supreme Court deferred to the board and said, the board is really the one that's expert in how workers organize unions. If the board thinks that it's appropriate to have this rule, we're going to defer to it. We think it's a reasonable interpretation of the statute. So this seems to suggest less deference to the board than the Supreme Court was willing to give in this old precedent. Tell me your general impressions of the oral arguments or the concerns of the judges Well, you never want to read too much into oral arguments. The judges, I know, read briefs carefully and take a close look at the law. However, based on the oral arguments, I have some concern that the judges were misreading existing precedent and seemed to be suggesting that they were going to curtail important expressive rights of workers in a way that's really troubling. What was Tesla's argument about why this should be allowed? So Tesla basically had two arguments. One was that there had been a problem with damage to vehicles, for example, car seats ripping, dents in items. And as a result of that, they needed to adopt a stricter uniform policy that limited, for example, metal on clothing. That's a legitimate business reason, right? They're worried about the quality of the cars. But what the board said was that reason doesn't connect to not wearing a black UAW shirt. So it's not enough of a reason. The second reason Tesla gave was that employers needed to have visual control. So they needed to be able to spot who's a worker, who's a manager. And all the workers had to wear black Tesla shirts in order to enable that kind of control over the production line. But there again, the board said, that's fine, right? That's a legitimate business reason. But as long as they're wearing a black UAW shirt, in the brief, there's pictures of shirts, you know, that essentially looks the same. It just has a different logo on it then again, the rule isn't advancing the business interest. And you can't just have a rule that is, we don't want you to wear the union shirt. Did the judges buy into Tesla's argument or were they off on another plane entirely with the ability of the Tesla employees to express themselves? I think the judges were in large part accepting Tesla's argument in the sense that Tesla was saying, you know, we get to decide what our employees wear as long as they have some opportunity to express their support of the union. And at least one of the judges seemed to think that that was what's really important. So as long as there's some way to express union support, for example, through a sticker, that that's sufficient. That was one of the arguments that Tesla advanced as well. Kate, if the Fifth Circuit finds in favor of Tesla, 
Does that mean that it's ignoring Supreme Court precedent? So it will depend on how they rule. If it's a very fact-bound decision that accepts the argument that there is a particular business reason in this case, it's a little hard for me to see what it is, but maybe they'll find one, then that wouldn't be in conflict with either the Supreme Court's longstanding precedent or the board's longstanding precedent. However, if they establish a new rule, something like as long as there's some way to express your support for the union, that's sufficient, that will really push against longstanding board precedent. There is a question about what the remedy would be if they find for Tesla. And the uh, NLRB lawyer wanted them to remand to the NLRB, and the Tesla lawyer said just dismiss the complaint. I think, again, the judges have a choice in terms of how broad a ruling they wish to pursue. The board's position is that they should remand the case for the board to consider in the first instance how you apply whatever rule the court sets out to these particular facts. And the company's position is, well, once you establish that as long as there's another way to show union support, then the case is done. And so, again, I think what the remedy is will depend in part on how broad a ruling the court adopts and, again, how much deference it is willing to exercise to the agency, how much it's willing to kind of recognize that it's the board's role in the first instance to figure out whether workers' rights engage in concerted activity are protected. I find it surprising that Tesla would bother to go through these appeals and everything over this issue. Am I missing something? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I think there's two things going on. One is that employers like Tesla do everything they can to try to stop workers from organizing unions. And so in every case, if they're able to exert more authority over the workplace and narrow the ability of workers to engage in organizing activity, that is very important to them, right? That sets precedent for future cases. It sends a message to workers, even if it doesn't set precedent, that it's going to be very difficult to win a union. And so I think that explains why Tesla is pursuing what seems like a relatively minor issue. And how important is this case in the grand scheme of things? Well, again, it really will depend on what the court says. It could be a very problematic case for workers' rights to organize, or it could be a relatively fact-bound opinion. But I think if you step back, what you can see is that there's a real battle going on. There's a very significant effort within the NLRB to protect workers' rights to organize, to really make real the promise of the statute. And the board has issued a series of opinions. This is only one of them but a series of opinions, a series of rulings where it is working very hard to protect workers' right to organize. And there's a big question about what happens when those opinions get up into the courts of appeals, particularly the very conservative courts of appeals. So it could be part of a broader trend of courts slapping down the board's efforts to protect workers' rights, or it could be an example of where the court recognized that this is what the law has long held, and they allow the board to do its job in protecting workers' rights. And I noticed that although the case originated in California, which is in the Ninth Circuit, Tesla appealed the NLRB's ruling to the Fifth Circuit. So one of the advantages that you have when you're the party that's appealing is you can pick the circuit in which you are located. And so Tesla determined or judged that it would likely have a more favorable panel in the Fifth Circuit, which has historically been one of the most conservative, if not the most conservative court in the country. But if this is appealed to the Supreme Court, I mean, have they issued any decisions in the last few years that favor unions? 
Not that I can think of. So there's been a series of cases where the Supreme Court has ruled against both the unions and workers, ranging from the case involving access to farm workers and their right to organize to the case about whether or not the NLRB could get to decide whether or not a strike is protected or a state court action could go forward. That's the Glacier case from this year. And those have all come out against workers. Thanks so much, Kate. That's Professor Kate Andreas of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.